I saw this first on the TV in the UK and I taped it off the TV and I would play the hell of it over and over again until the tracking wore out on my VHS. Those are words from director Edgar Wright testing his love for Brian De Palma's 1974 film Phantom of the Paradise. Seeing Faces in Movies is a podcast where each month I focus on the works of a different director or cinematographer, and each week I invite a guest on to discuss the film and the artist's filmography. Today we're talking about Phantom of the Paradise, so quick synopsis of the film is, a disfigured composer sells his soul for the woman he loves so that she will perform his music. However, an evil record tycoon betrays him and steals his music to open his rock palace, the paradise. A tagline for the film is, Winslow Leach is a young man who wants to create heavenly music, even if he has to descend to the depths of hell to do it. The film stars William Finley as Winslow Leach, Paul Williams as Swan, Jessica Harper as Phoenix, and Garrett Graham as Beef. It's written by Brian De Palma, directed by Brian De Palma, cinematography by Larry Pizer, edited by Paul Hirsch, and music by Paul Williams. So today my guest is Weird Alice. And I know them from the films that they program at the Paradise Theater in Toronto. And they have a different, like a multitude of programs that they run. One being Drag Me to the Movies. We also have Evil Women. And I know you also do some work with Sleaze Factory. So first of all, Weird Alice, thank you so much for coming on, talking about Brian De Palma with me. I'm very excited to have you on. I mean, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, I, uh, I'm i a programmer, filmmaker, and performance artist based between Canada and Australia, of all places. Mm-hmm. Um, and I run Drag Me to the Movies, which is a cult kind of semi-interactive queer screening series, not relegated to just queer film, but anything that has some sort of camp value that I think mm-hmm. people absolutely must watch. And we play movie bingo and there's prizes and just, you know, sometimes it's to get you through the slog of the middle of some semi-unwatchable movies. We make it a bit more fun. And then Evil Women, exactly what it sounds like. And then Sleaze Factory. They're all just me, by the way. <laughs> so it's oh, just Sleaze me. is also you. Okay. So, yeah, Sleaze Factory is also me, which is uh, rem- meant to be reminiscent of Thursday night cable television after 11 o'clock where you're mm-hmm. like, is this softcore porn? Um, did I make up this movie? Did I just see Bush? And so we're just kind of pushing to see how far into sexploitation I can get before it's either too far for the theater, the audience, or myself. I'm just kind mm-hmm. of testing everybody's waters with that you know when i heard that you were doing this i was so excited that you asked me to do phantom of the paradise Mm -hmm. it's my favorite movie ever made so that's that's exciting that's exciting to talk to someone who this is like one of their all-time favorites it's it's a dual tie this and peewee's big adventure are probably Mm -hmm. if i had to burn every movie on the world on the face (laughs) of the planet i wouldn't be able to choose between the two of these and i'd probably Mm -hmm. just like light myself on fire <laughs> that's fair i do host a yearly screening of phantom of the paradise at the paradise it's happening mm-hmm. again at the end of november okay. on friday the 24th of november i believe whatever that friday is okay. and we've got guests coming in from vancouver last year i may have come down from the balcony of the theater in the phantom <laughs> mask you know nice. just just committed 
wholeheartedly to the Brian De Palma bit. Well, I'm excited for that. And that's good timing because this will air in October. I made October De Palma month. So amazing. That'll get people excited for November. Definitely looking forward to that. Do you want to just talk about a little about your, you know, your relationship to cinema and films of Brian De Palma? Sure. I mean, my relationship to cinema is because I always tease that I didn't have friends until I was almost an adult teenager. I spent all of my time in video stores and just renting movies, working at video stores, watching endless hours of TV. And now, a redacted amount of years later, I still spend all of my time in movie theaters, watching television, making movies. Like, it's it's all I do. It's all I know. It's all I really care to spend my time for. And it inspires all aspects of my art. And Brian Mm -hmm. De Palma is... One of my favorite filmmakers. He is not my all-time favorite filmmaker. That goes to the King John Waters. But Mm -hmm. really, every time, even De Palma movies that I haven't seen before, when I finally watch them, I'm like, "Mm, I'm pretty sure I love most of your work. And he's just, I know a lot of people see him as like very much like a dude filmmaker for film bros. And I think he just makes magic. And it's not going to be you know, a theme in this movie so much, but I also tease that I also think that Brian De Palma is a late-in-life lesbian, and if he came out and transitioned like a week before he died, I wouldn't be surprised at all. It's just the way he... The way, the very sapphic way that I think he shows women in his movies. I was like, you're just, you're just a big old dyke. I agree with all of that. He's, he's like top three. I don't know if I have like a ranking for my favorite directors, but he's definitely in the top three. He's one that anytime I get the chance to talk about De Palma, I'm just so excited. Like for me, I always say De Palma's for the, like the secret freaks, you know, some the people who freaks. might, yeah, who may not be freaky on the outside but then you get to know them and you're like oh there's something different i guess about you (laughs) oh absolutely like i he always gets to a point in each of his movies where you're like you really just said that with your whole chest your (laughs) obsession you're just like you just you went there and i won't say where because i'm sure you'll get to it when you eventually talk about that movie with somebody but it's just like you're like oh and uh here we are just just a magical man very i think he is properly like a filmmaker yes he might stick to very specifically people are like oh that's his like style it's his trope and yes a lot of what he does is him mirroring hitchcock but he's Mm -hmm. like i have a creative vision movies are meant to be visual and exciting i call like the types of movies he make they're movies made with like fuck off money i would Mm -hmm. kill to have fuck off brian de palma money where i could afford to have a set piece like anything in Scarface or like the end of this movie, just Mm -hmm. being able to pay that or, you know, the opening of Snake Eyes to pay that many extras at full cost and film (laughs) and have these like beautiful, lavish sets. And, you know, it doesn't matter that he's affording name actors because that's not always the point, but it's like to have that much money to make something where you're like, I'm going to commit to something visually stunning. And he he does the same things in all of his movies visually because they work Mm -hmm. and they're his style and they're they're a pretty damn good signature. I just think he's a phenomenal filmmaker. I get that some of his stories or films are not for people, but you can't deny that this man is very capable 
And the theme that's been running with all the guests for the Diploma Month has been that he's someone who likes to have fun with making a film. And a lot of directors and a lot of audience members just don't seem to enjoy fun anymore. Whenever someone says they don't like a movie and it's like maybe not the greatest story of a film or it's a bit of a mess, but it's balls to the wall. I'm like, do you just mm-hmm. not like joy? Yeah. <laughs> like you'll you'll watch a CGI superhero explosion, but you're going to tell me that Malignant is a bad movie because it's goofy. I'm like, yeah. it's just fun. Like, I don't yeah. know. Maybe maybe do drugs before you watch movies. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I don't know. Like, I don't want to get too into it, but like, I there's been a shift. I don't know when it happened when people were just like, we can no longer accept something being goofy unless it's like a straight up comedy. We cannot accept oh. any sort of fun. Well, it's a shame because I mean, uh, one of the traits of Phantom of the Paradise is absolutely definitely a bit of like goofiness. It mm-hmm. might help that uh, one of our leads, Paul Williams, is a real life Muppet. <laughs> he looks like one. He has muppets on his home piano from a sketch he did on the muppets that look exactly like Mm. him and this is you know a movie where people chew up the scenery yeah the actors really are willing to go there Mm -hmm. at every turn someone someone is going 10 steps further than most other directors would allow but Mm -hmm. this movie wouldn't work if the performances weren't so beyond committed oh yeah it's dialed way up Right from like the start. And that's why this film is now considered a cult classic. A cult classic only in Canada by way of by way of Winnipeg. Yeah. I don't know if you know why, like who is the catalyst for it being famous in Winnipeg and how it became famous. But it's because of children. So this movie was promoted on TV in Winnipeg. They would have a lot of ads for films like screening in theaters on tv and it was it was in some like children's magazines for sure but it was played Mm. during like saturday morning cartoons so all of these kids went out to see this movie even though it is not a children's film by any stretch of the imagination um, it's so inappropriate for children but it's it's so also like fantastical mm-hmm. without being you know uh like a fantasy or adventure movie mm-hmm. and all of these kids would go out in droves to see this movie and their parents liked it especially if their dads liked it and then they just kept going to see this movie and it almost got to that rocky horror level of repeated screenings mm-hmm. specifically in winnipeg so this movie was oddly a flop most other places mm-hmm. but in Canada, it just hit it. And I know there's a documentary called The Phantom of Winnipeg, and it's all about that. And it's just, it's absolutely bonkers that that's where it kind of grew to its fame as opposed to in the very like underground, almost like we want to make sure that this movie is a success as a midnight movie. This mm-hmm. one grew like an earnest following in like one spot. Which is wild out of anywhere in Canada. It was Winnipeg. <laughs> there, you said Brian De Palma's for the secret freaks. I feel like Winnipeg is the city for the secret yeah. freaks. I know so many, and I say that with extreme love. As oh, yeah. Again, my name's Weird Alice. Like, I love a good, a movie freak, and Winnipeg is full of them. They're, they're great people and have good film programming in that city. Yeah, they have a really good rep cinema there. And like, the name is like completely escaping me right now, but I know I've been, because 
I've been to Winnipeg once. There's the cin- they have their Cinematheque there, which is their big yeah. their big thing. And you know that one of their programmers runs a series called Bikini Drive-In. Mm-hmm. Um, a law. It's two of them. It's Olivia Norquay and Jill Groening, and they've done like podcasts and like events. They program. Uh, she's the one of the programmers at Winnipeg Cinematheque, and it's all stuff like this, stuff like Phantom mm-hmm. of the Paradise, Greg Araki, you know, stuff yeah. for the weirdos. That's good. That's what I like to hear. We need more of that. More of that everywhere, please. Toronto is pretty good for the selection, but the rest of Canada also needs a bit more of that. We're we're spoiled for choice here. We are. It's Toronto. You know, it's a big enough city. I love it. Oh, I say that with like I like that any day of the week. You can yeah. go out. And you have three movies that you have to decide between what to see. Yeah. And this is like post, like just Tiff is happens to be like 10 days out of the year. We're talking about the rest of the year. The rest of the year. We've got a good choice. Yeah. Yeah. During the record pressing scene, Winslow Leach get his uh, gets his face disfigured in the record press. It was actually a real pressing plant and they kind of molded it with foam pads so that he wouldn't, you know. Die? Get hurt. Yeah. But it seems that the machine was still powerful enough to crush him and he managed to get his face out just in time. And the screen that you hear in the film was him actually screaming of fear that his face <laughs> was going to get crushed in this machine. When they say that you can't make movies like this anymore, that like awful saying, that's yeah. that, that might be one of them that, that feels yeah. <laughs> like that violates some sort of, you know. Oh, yeah union right as an actor to not be near disfigured on set if you are not a stunt person (laughs) yeah exactly that (laughs) the single edit time bomb in the car trunk sequence is an homage to orson welles touch of evil opening which i don't think i fully even noticed and then when i read that i was like okay yeah i forgot about the way touch of evil opens i need to rewatch touch of evil because i'm like it's been a hot minute I watch this movie and I see the split screen and mm-hmm. that's 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 I mean one of his little you know tick boxes his split screen yep. is one of the one of the highlights of this movie really for that because it's not only the split screen it's like the split audio yes in that one because you hear like what's meant to be happening but then you hear you hear the song and the performances, but you have the overarching ticking of that time bomb, which mm-hmm. is also like the world's most bizarre metronome. Like I'm 90% sure that's not what the ticking <laughs> of the bomb would sound like. Cause it's like a weird like triplet ticking. Um because mm-hmm. for the beat of the music. And then you also hear like all the backstage conversations. Mm-hmm. It's it's so good. Almost so much that you have to really focus to pay attention to either because mm-hmm. it's so loud. I mean, what I've been saying with a lot of his films is that is the rewatchability factor, like on your first watch, because you're kind of a little bit overwhelmed with sound or visuals if you're not used to seeing split screen. So you're kind of focusing on one thing uh, and you might have the other one kind of just on the side eye. Even in this film, I don't know if you would call it a spoiler, the ending, it doesn't really ruin your watching even like a dress to kill or a body double where you might have a spoiler you can still go back and rewatch those movies because there's just so much that you would have 100 percent missed on a first watch this is one of those movies that <laughs> it mm-hmm. has multiple like almost too many references so mm-hmm. you know it's, uh, it's obviously a mockery of phantom of the opera 
but he's haunting a nightclub called the paradise and he gets his face disfigured by record press like that's the obvious one and mm-hmm. then you've got the picture of dorian gray with mm-hmm. the aging film of swan and then it's also the story of faust which they tell you from the yeah. beginning but it not only is his musical that the film follows the beats of the story of faust and it's like yeah. he could have easily just picked one of yeah. those things that made a movie <laughs> but he's like oh, why don't i do all of it and it's yeah. like he he wrote and directed this it's not his mm-hmm. first movie but it is up there with one of his earliest mm-hmm. features so it's like it's post sisters but it's immediately shockingly the one right after this is obsession yeah i know i like how he never shied away like this was a flop Another person would have dialed it back and been like, okay, I got to get into something more normal, in quotes, and then I can go back to being myself. But he's like, nope, (laughs) I got to ramp it up even more. Yeah, this one, I think, is like a lot of people who don't like Brian De Palma will say that they like this movie, Mm -hmm. even though, it again, it ticks all of his boxes, but it is wackier. Yeah, the narrative is there and it follows all of those beats and it is a cohesive story, but it's also committed to the bit. It's committed Mm -hmm. to insanity, for lack of a better word. It's just, it's so good. And it's, you know, it's a great non-diegetic musical. Mm -hmm. It's just a perfect movie. It's great. It was great to rewatch it. And it's just one of those where, as you said, it's probably more narratively, um, in a film like where that people who might not like his other stuff, they could still enjoy this because right off the bat, you're looking at these characters, the way they're dressed, the set design, you're like, okay, I know what's happening, but other films, some of the characters might present themselves as everyday people and you realize that they're not. So I think this is why this is the one that people might like this and like Carrie because it's an adaptation of a Stephen King novel. Also, Carrie is just a perfect horror movie. It's- it is. <laughs> People are at all split with his movies. You have people who like his more lurid and fantastical, mm-hmm. bizarre stuff like this, Carrie, mm-hmm. movies like Body Double, movies that uh, Raising Kane. And mm-hmm. then you have people who are like, I like Scarface and Carlito's Way. Yep. And I mean, Blowout, I think, can go either way. But it's like those ones where they're like, I like his his men movies. And then yeah. like I ha- and then people who like his weird movies. And then those of us who just I like that he does it all. Oh, yeah, same. He does it all while maintaining, like, a consistent style. Exactly. Tracking shots, which he uses a bunch in this. Like, a lot of lengthy, like, you mentioned the split screen with the Mm -hmm. upholstery with the car, which is two simultaneous tracking shots, because they've got Mm -hmm. one following backstage and one following the Juicy Fruits, the band. Mm -hmm. And then you've got the second song in the movie, which is not the opening, but immediately after with Winslow singing his song. And it's just a constant spinning camera around him while he's playing Mm -hmm. the piano. And Bananas like running through, like following up the stairs where he's trying to find his before he finds the mask and he's yeah stumbling there and then another like chase scene like he uses so many unedited like mm-hmm. you're gonna go from point a to point b and we're gonna follow you with a camera that's what i love about his movies and i think that's why i mean admittedly i'll say i haven't seen mission impossible yet that's the one that i haven't <laughs> seen of his but i think it makes sense 
One, I always forget that he did it and it's on my list to finally watch this year, but it makes sense why he would be tapped to do like an action film because he's able to, you know, work with the cinematographer to shoot, to shoot like that sort of like action packed scene that's just following someone through like intense action. Even intense though these action. films, yeah, these films are not action films, but this is like intense action of following someone upstairs. They're trying to find a mask in there or they're trying to find something to cover themselves with. You mentioned the fact that he's kind of inspired by three different stories and it's essentially a big opera and it's labeled as a rock opera. It is a rock opera. Yeah. At the beginning, we get Rod Serling, actually, who's introducing the film, introducing the characters who we're going to see and setting it up and not in a way that's kind of demeaning to the audience where they're like, okay, we got to set this up for you because you're not going to understand. It's more for the effect of the opera and the drama and just explaining who Swan is what his deal is and how we're going to go from there. How do you feel about that opening? And then we don't really see Swan for a little while. A while. You, you only see his hands and then Mm -hmm. in the shadow. And I don't know if it's because they wanted, like, there's a lot of reasons, but Mm -hmm. they're obviously trying to make him seem more ominous than he is because Paul Williams is a, is a tiny man. Yes. (laughs) And, also, he is. He's he's the man behind everything. That's like there's mm-hmm. obviously like story reasons, but <laughs> Paul Williams is a bit hard to like make seem ominous just on like first yeah. glance. And he does such a good job having kind of a demonic presence in this, but while mm-hmm. still maintaining his things a weird a man. But also before you see him, because it's the first time you see his face when he walks into the room of the women. I think Mm -hmm. it is where he's like, all of these women are like, oh, this sex god, we love Swan. And then he walks into the room with with all these girls writhing around on a bed and Paul Williams, like (laughs) tiny man in a suit. It's just with those glasses that are not too dissimilar from the glasses that I wear every day. It's great. But um, like you don't see him for a while. But having the opening of Rod Serling, I'm glad you pointed it out because not a lot of people no, even though it's like very obviously him, and yeah, it's the voice of the mm-hmm. Twilight Zone. I think that's done on purpose to evoke that obviously this movie is like a Twilight Zone episode almost. Oh, it's, yeah, it's what Twilight Zone the movie wishes it was. <laughs> and I will not apologize to child murderer John Landis for that. Um, no, I mean, I also I agree. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> Something you did say, um. Uh, having Rod Sterling as being the opening voice and setting it up and it's on purpose. I think De Palma does every single thing with purpose. And some people might find it excessive, but it's not really because it's done with a purpose. He's not just doing it, but because he's like, this has a purpose and you might find it to be excessive or too much. There's definitely a reason for everything that he does. And it's, I just find it so obvious as a fan. Yeah. He's not really an improviser. <laughs> no, absolutely not. Imagine if any of any of his movies were improvised. Like, there, there might mm-hmm. be a line or two that, uh, you know, mm-hmm. some characterization that an actor brought that maybe wasn't anticipated. But these are all planned out to, like, the T. It's too... They're too technical. They're, yeah. There's too much going on and it's no surprise that this is one of my favorite movies because it, it it's you said it's a rock opera it's, it's a soap opera it's a soap opera mm-hmm. it's a twilight zone episode it's a musical it's a horror movie it really just kind of ticks all those boxes but in a way that really works together and like it's got some of the best performances and a lot from like actors in this who he does use a lot Mm -hmm. likes to use a lot of the same actors so you know our lead winslow william Mm -hmm. finley was in sisters and he was also in 
a lot of his movies. I think he was in Dress to Kill, The Fury, Black Dahlia. Mm -hmm. And so he's in a lot of his movies. And this would have been his second movie. Oh, no, third, because he was in one of his earlier ones, which I haven't seen, The Wedding Party. Okay, um, yeah. But he, yeah, he, so he's worked with him a few times by now, but he's not like a huge name. No. Like in Hollywood at this point, same with like Garrett Graham. Garrett Graham's done a lot of B-movies, mm-hmm. like a lot, a lot of B-movies, uh, but not his first time working with him either, because he's also in High Mom. And so it's like he's done done these things, and then everybody loves to point out that Sissy Spacek, our beautiful Carrie, is in the yes. end credits as the set dresser yeah (laughs) so obviously she was there a good worker and he thought she was either talented or beautiful or both and was like have i got the movie for you right and and this you've got like jessica harper again icon legend i don't think this movie would have worked without her you can't really replace anyone in this but she's Mm -hmm. i'm sure there are other people that they could have picked to be in this but this was her first feature i was reading that Sissy had auditioned for this role, but then it eventually went to Jessica Harper. I can't picture Sissy Spacek singing. Like, it would have... Um, yeah, I mean, I've seen her in um, Coal Miner's Daughter, but that's like a more that's of a right. country she... singing. Yes. I can't see her being like a rock singer. Being Phoenix. Like, she's yeah. the only one who can sing Winslow's music. Mm-hmm. She is the, the object of his affection, but it's, again, mainly, it's obviously that riff on Christina Family Albright, it's, it's her voice. Yeah. She's just, she is what it is. She, her stage presence isn't what's expected. And this also, mm-hmm. like, follows, like, there's other movies she's in that kind of put her through the same ringer. Um, This is her, the top of what she's done. Like, she's in Suspiria, which is after this. But, like, mm-hmm. movies that get to, like, use her singing ability, it's just, mm-hmm. it's magical. It's Oh God, what a what a great movie! I know. I was gonna say, did you want to talk about the music? Did you have a favorite song? Because like this is very music heavy, and it's not like a Rocky Horror with a lot of people might know the songs prior to watching the film and be like, oh, I this one that people song. wouldn't know the songs really no. at all. And I will say, I like that you asked what's my favorite song because. I love pointing this out to people sometimes before they watch it, sometimes after they've seen it if they hadn't clocked mm-hmm. it. Most of the songs are the same song repurposed. Mm-hmm. So the song that his Faust song that he sings has like a reprise. But when they do upholstery, the song with the ticking time bomb, where mm-hmm. the Juicy Fruits are now the Beach Bums, same band. Mm-hmm. They've moved from their Four Seasons Greasers-esque personas to now they're the Beach Boys mm-hmm. parody. They go from their like 50s stuff to their 60s music. Upholstery mm-hmm. is just Faust, but with different lyrics. I don't think I clocked that one. I Was Not Myself Last Night is like the first line of every verse in both songs. It's the exact same song. So now the next time you watch it, they have all the different reprises of mm-hmm. Faust and they change kind of the lyrics every time. So that's like the kind of running repeated thing because like Faust, it's his opus. Mm-hmm. But my favorite song, I mean, I love Never Thought I'd Get to Meet the Devil, which is when Winslow's mm-hmm. going to meet Paul Williams. And it's only a snippet and there is no full version of that song. Mm-hmm. And it's sung, it's sung by Paul Williams. Even though it's presented as Winslow, it's 
Yeah. My favorite is the hell of it, which plays over the end credits, which is actually from a scene that got cut from the movie. Oh, okay. and it's um, there's meant to be a scene of Beef's funeral. They decide to not have it. And I mean, take a wish from John Waters. If you think you need to edit or cut something from your movie, do it. This movie yeah. is 92 minutes, which means it's two minutes too long. And I'll accept that. <laughs> I've got a 10 minute buffer window on the no movies over 90 minutes club. 100 minutes is normally fine. Yeah. I'll take the extra two minutes of this perfect movie, which are pretty much just the end credits. Um, mm-hmm. But it's a song about being everyone's glad you're dead it's like though yeah. your music lingers on all of us are glad you're d- gone and it's just such like a mean but like done almost like in a mocking evil sprite way it's like haha you're dead fuck you yeah playful so that's absolutely my favorite one but all of the music in this no surprise was written by paul williams mm-hmm. that's it's so good which he was not here's my favorite fact about this movie that i only found out before i screened it last year so brian De palma like was like pitching this to studios and having a hard time getting anybody to latch onto this movie because he wasn't big yet he didn't yeah. have his he didn't have his fuck around money he's got to con- convince <laughs> studios to you know take a chance on him paul williams wasn't even a man who he knew of or was on his radar. And he had tried going to record companies to see if they'd back the movie. And Mm -hmm. he walked into a building as Paul was leaving. And he was like, who's that guy? I want that guy. Yeah. I spent like hours reading all the production notes about it when I was at the TIFF reference library last year to see if I could find any like press materials. Because I go to sometimes see if things mm-hmm. that got sent out to promote the movies sometimes you can find some cool novelties but they had all of this stuff like production notes about making this movie and paul williams wasn't like they didn't seek him out because he's a brilliant songwriter or the uh-huh. right actor he didn't know who he was and then oh, wanted him to be in the movie and he wrote all i mean he wrote all the music for the muppet he's written mm-hmm. a lot of famous songs good old-fashioned love song and stuff like that and songs by three dog night but this is him writing the music, sometimes singing the songs. Mm-hmm. My favorite little movie tidbit of him singing the song is the scene where, you know, you, you have Winslow gets his face crushed by a record press. You have yeah. him get his teeth pulled out in jail. So he has no voice. He's got no face. His teeth are metal now. And he's only making these like guttural weird noises and so he makes them into like a robot and he hooks up this voice box to him so he can like sing his songs and i mean that's my favorite scene of the movie where they're piping him through and he's pressing all yeah. the buttons on the sound console and he's like dolby's and doing yeah. all of that shit <laughs> it's i don't know why dolby's tickles me it's not even like a joke it's just so funny and when he's doing that and he's singing the song and he sounds like a robot and it's like winslow's mm-hmm. voice and he's changing all the pitches and then he gets to this voice and he goes perfect the voice is no longer william finley the guy winslow leach it's paul williams's swan so the perfect voice is now swan's voice Exactly, And it's like the funniest little thing that I don't know if you're meant to notice it as a viewer or if it's just like a fun thing. But like instantly I was like, that's Paul Williams singing. Mm -hmm. And it's so funny. I don't know that you're meant to or not meant to notice, but there's no way unless you are like a fan of Paul Williams prior to this movie, you wouldn't really notice because we only really get one Winslow Leach song prior to the whole debacle i don't know that i noticed the difference in voice until i was reading about it and then i 
when I went back to watch, I was like, oh, okay, I can see, I can hear it now. And he's credited, he is credited as like the Phantom's singing voice. Because mm-hmm. um, it's like Winslow sings Winslow's songs, and then the mm-hmm. Phantom is no longer voiced by Winslow anymore. It's yeah. just beautiful. It's just it's just a beautiful, bizarre, bizarre movie. And mm-hmm. the music is the music kills it. I mean, Life at Last Beef's songs are also yeah, they're really really good. The whole bit with the undead, which is like you know the kiss. Alice Cooper vibe mm-hmm. glam rock band that the Juicy Fruits evolve into. So they, you know, their fifties band, their sixties band, and now their seventies band, which is this like evil rock band. Like all of the music is perfect. And my only qualm it with is. the soundtrack is that the soundtrack versions of songs like Life at Last don't mm-hmm. have all of like the screams that are in the movie. Oh, and I think those are like okay part of the the beauty of these songs like they're like theatrical nature yeah well exactly because that's how you hear it in the film so that's the way you associate it i kind of i also have my qualms with that when musicals per se will release the soundtrack on you know a record and then you get like a complete kind of different or stripped down version i'm like i really want the version that i you know hear in the film so Mm -hmm. Something you kind of mentioned briefly that I do want to talk about is the set design in this film, because there are so many beautiful sets. Even one that stuck out to me prior to even just the ending scene was when Swan is looking for a new voice and... The big gold record desk? Yes. And he's like sitting in the middle of it and the room's dark around him and it's just the camera's going from one artist to another around and around. And I just never seen anything like that. I've never seen anything like it's that. Beautiful. And it's on all of my sh- shot deck for movies that I've got in the pipeline. It's mm-hmm. like, I need to figure out what my gold record desk is. But also, yeah. <laughs> every time I look at it, as beautiful as it is, I think of the funniest thing is like the practicality of yeah. that as a desk is funny. But also, even on set, that means that Paul Williams yeah. had to like climb to up climb up and stand and walk his tiny self over and then like hop down <laughs> there's no other way to get into the middle of this desk. i know it's which is so funny so funny <laughs> and when they're going through also all of like the bands that they mm-hmm. like try out there are some that like don't work like the kind of country dude i do love it and it's funny mm-hmm. but like you've got like the black girl group they they're they've got the best rendition of the song oh yeah and, and he's just like next and he's going through all of these things <laughs> he just landing on beef is the most <laughs> homoerotic choice and <laughs> everyone says that to me that beef's character is like such a homophobic portrayal even though they never oh, really? say that the the, the character yeah. is gay other than paul williams calling him a slur no and which is not yeah. calling him a slur he calls winslow a slur but he he's he's got his like list yeah but i just think he's like a delight because he's given the villain treatment in his like short story arc even though mm-hmm. he's not remotely villainous, he's no. <laughs> just kind of like a diva. He's just a rock. Oh, yeah. And his first, yeah. it's not even his first appearance, but his first appearance as Beef, where mm-hmm. he comes out of the coffin mm-hmm. and he just grimaces at the screen. It's just, 
but that uh, that set piece of that desk is that's the highlight for sure of unique set pieces and then you know there's that big ending scene but also there's like one that's a throwaway cool set piece that you see for maybe 15 seconds which is where Before Winslow gets arrested and he goes in and there's the really tall, 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 um, I don't know what they're called because they say mm-hmm. the bench and things, but where the judge sits in a courtroom. Okay, okay. And it's like 30 feet tall and the guy's sitting at the top of it and Winslow goes in and he goes, no, I'm innocent. Someone stole my music and framed me. Like, it's this weird, almost like... I think maybe Tim Burton's referencing it in a lot of like the oversized pieces he's Mm -hmm. making in his movies because he's the only other director who I can think of who has these like giant like courtrooms where Mm -hmm. the person (laughs) is tiny and you have the judge like 50 feet above you. That one is like great. And it's like all of that had to be built for Mm -hmm. the payoff of 15 seconds. And something I noticed in the final sequence, yeah, the final scene, the very first song, the background on the stage is very German expressionism. Oh, like the lit, like the disco yeah. that they're in? Yeah. And I think even something, like you said, with this courtroom scene of having like the judge so high up and the person really small, it gives off that very much German expressionist vibe. And I, I have to assume that he was a fan of that era of cinema because just like the exaggeration of set pieces and the villainous look of a lot of people in those films is mm-hmm. translates to this film very much. Yeah, because a lot of people point out just his Hitchcock stuff, which is like the least present in this movie. This is yeah. like his, I think his first going into that is obsession. This is mm-hmm. him just, you know, doing all of his, you know, banana pants. Work. Yeah. And it is, it's a horror movie, but without being scary in like mm-hmm. uh that type of horror movie but it's it's gory it's mean it, it's an evil film <laughs> yeah like no one no one has a single good thing no one has a good outcome in this movie not no. swan not winslow not phoenix not beef not no. even uh old tubbo yeah. it's, uh, <laughs> not true he has his psycho scene in this movie. I was even like, oh, he yes, doesn't have his yes, thing. And I was like, yes. he absolutely has his psycho scene. Yeah. Where he gets the plunger. Scene. Yeah. <laughs> I take back what I just said. And he's got even the blood swirling down. Oh, it's But it's so good. It's so good. Write what you know. Well, exactly. Hey, if I ever get to make a film, they'll be saying, oh, she's stealing from, she's I- borrowing from De Palma. Yeah, 100%. Oh, absolutely. I also love the idea of borrowing from like somebody who's notorious for borrowing from other people. Yeah. So you're like, <laughs> are you referencing De Palma or who De Palma referenced? You'll never know. Exactly. Except for anyone who <laughs> listens to your podcast. Well, absolutely. Yeah. Do you like Hitchcock too? But I, I would say I, I like Hitchcock. I am love. absolutely obsessed. Oh, obsessed. De Palma. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say we don't get a, a shower scene in this movie, but we do. It's just not with, you know, so it's just not titties. Boobs. It's uh beef's nipples out. Everything to do with beef is extremely homoerotic. <laughs> it's it's so when he's running outside and he's having his little like tantrum before yeah. he ends up going on stage, Garrett Graham is not as revered as I think he should be. No, I mean most people wouldn't even know his name, unfortunately. I like that scene because he's also wearing like a Santa esque like robe. Yeah, he's wearing his like <laughs> his his red with white fur like yeah. winter coat. Um, I would say in horror worlds, people know who he is. He does a lot of conventions. Okay, um, that's good. 
And he's in like other great bizarre movies like Terror Vision. Like he's just like he okay. plays a weird, weird, weird man. <laughs> and we love him for that. We so. we love him for it. It's <laughs> again perfect casting, mm-hmm. most beautiful set, costume design is next yes. level. Like you mentioned that you also have Beef's outfit where he's got like antlers, like a yeah. whole rack of antlers as a belt buckle. Yeah. <laughs> It's so funny. I I was reading someone's uh someone's you know thoughts on this, and they hated that. And I was like, how do you watch this movie, enjoy this movie, but you hate that specific item of clothing that he? They has? didn't. They didn't like. It. He's got this like what's the word for it? It's almost like a Mexican inspired mat- matadors. Yes, okay. matador. He's got the almost like matador jacket, and then his hair is in curlers, but he's got glitter in his hair while it's still in curlers, and then this <laughs> this friggin' antler belt. It's 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 beautiful. I mean, it does look like something I would wear, but it is what you would assume a <laughs> little bit off their rocker, mm-hmm. like out of touch artiste would wear. Yes. Like when they're not on stage where like even backstage, they're still dressed in stage clothes. Yeah, exactly. That that actually ties into one of the last things I I, I wanted to bring up was, you know, this is a film that's quite chaotic. It's good chaos, but it's chaotic. And he's able to capture that in a way that is so believable because none of this is, he's not trying to pretend like, oh, this is real life. This is like its own universe he's created. And he's able to capture the chaos and it lends to, you know, the way people address, the way people talk in this movie. And he always says that he's not big on scripts and, you know, people talking. There's more talking in this film than probably his other films. It was also more singing. But how do you feel about, you know, the chaotic nature of this film? I I know that you obviously enjoy that, but the way it's captured and the fact that you don't question it from like the opening scene until the end. Like there's no at no point where you're like, oh, this doesn't seem believable because it's believable for this story. The chaos, again, it really does work. It works in the sense that it's the unraveling of like a single bad decision that is passed on to everybody else. So, Mm -hmm. you know, Swan sells his soul to the devil and then kind of creates these this line of people who Mm -hmm. anything happens to him, it happens to them. And it's just like he's ramping up poor death but he's doing everything for cinematic excess like an assassination on live television and he's creating this satanic level of chaos all because he was a narcissist yeah you know they throw in heavy stuff without actually like getting into it like they throw in he's gonna kill himself in the bathtub but he's like he's constantly filming himself like he's already filming himself not to like leave a video note because it's easy, but because mm-hmm. he's famous and people will see it. And so he's living into this excess. And I don't think it would work without that chaos, even though that like final scene is like bananas. And I still don't understand at all how any of that was directed. This yeah. like, crazy, almost sex, sex, it's sex, drugs and rock and roll, but in this like mm-hmm. over the top party, it just really wouldn't work if it was a restrained movie oh no and it's got that uncanny uncanny valley but it's the moment you bring in something like satanism and selling your soul into a movie 
And anything yeah. that, I mean, Brian De Palma loves to mock Hollywood and fame, does mm-hmm. it extremely and show you that like seedy side of all of it, where he's just willing to take it to task. This is very much like mocking the record industry. Oh, yeah. And celebrity. He, he, he likes to make fun of celebrity a lot. Oh, yeah. And I, I appreciate that. Like, we don't get that as often as someone who's like, I'm going to use your money, but I'm also going to kind of rip you apart in, like, the most artistic <laughs> way. Of, like, it's not a full takedown where you're left, like, feeling angry at the industry. You kind of are, but it's like he's doing it in a fun way of being like, I'm just going to be honest. This is how I feel about this industry, and I'm going to do my own take on it. But if you want to give me your money to do it, <laughs> I'm more than happy to spend it. It really does like tick all of those boxes in this bizarre thing and also like i'm just thinking now because you were mentioning german expression films there is also a little bit of an element of like the cabin of dr caligari in this story Mm -hmm. oh yeah and and in the imagery and it's just it really just goes there i know i keep saying that i feel like i'm like just thinking about how much i cannot wait for it to be november so i can watch this (laughs) in a theater again I mean, this is very much, I think, obviously, any film should be watched on a big screen. But this is one that should be not only watched on a big screen, but with an audience, because anyone who's there is obviously there. Some might might be there for the first time, but people who are there who I love this film and the energy you're going to get off of each other is like something that's beautiful with like this type of rock opera. Without the audience feeling the need to resort to being raucous or doing a sing-along, like yeah. people are willing, even if the ones who know it, everyone's just there to enjoy it and is having like, you can, it's like an electric feeling without being obnoxious. And I just really yes. want to harp on that because I think a lot of modern audiences, especially people who should know better, who go to rep cinemas all the time, are on their worst behavior in a movie theater all the time and and have to call in response and be obnoxious on purpose. Like it's never, I I don't mind a genuine, you know, don't go in the house and like freak out and screams and reactions to horror movies that because they're, they're sincere reactions. Mm -hmm. Um, But then you have, you know, Rocky horror, which is like on principle meant to be interactive, but then you have people who bring that to other movies and luckily knock on wood, Phantom of the Paradise doesn't get that. And when I screened it, we had... The crowd was, I'd say, half people who are obsessed with that movie and then half people who had never even heard of it who were coming out for the Mm. first time. The amount of people in that sold-out show, it was like we were getting people every day asking us if we were releasing more tickets because it was sold out. Mm. It was Everybody was like on board and like ready for it. And that's not one that we do that's interactive. We have performances beforehand and then the rest of it is just like the movie just does its own thing. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because... I mean, this is not even to get angry or this type of thing, but it's fine that sometimes you rep screenings when people are not as familiar with older films or, you know, the time that they're made in. And then they just laugh. They're laughing at the most awkward things. I'm like, this is not funny at all. What's happening on screen? Yeah. And it's not a nervous laughter. It's like a knee slap guffaw. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Goofy movie. Look, yeah. look at this old movie. And it's. Yeah. Not, I went to a screening of Panic in Needle Park and somebody laughed during an overdose scene to which I yelled at them to leave the theater. (laughs) Yeah, that's wild. Getting the possession screenings, people were like cheering. Yeah. 
Like it's so thankfully, you know, this is a movie that for all its chaotic nature, you can have like a fun electric movie going Mm -hmm. experience and the movie is what does all the talking. There's just so much going on at all times. It doesn't really even give you time to sit down and think until the end. And it's like, I'm all for cheering during, you know, certain scenes or clapping, but then like save your enthusiasm. (laughs) or your interactions for your discussions to your friends afterwards i mean there's a a very like goofy brian de palma doing his thing Mm -hmm. that he does very early on in this movie that other people don't like but i it tickles me is he does a newspaper wipe where he has like (laughs) a he has a spinning newspaper yeah (laughs) which is such like an old it is an old timey early like film transition but and it doesn't need to be there but it works i I feel like it it adds to like the fun nature of this movie it's just it's not afraid to Mm -hmm. be fun while being still gritty so it it's not done in the the dangerous waters of a horror comedy, which I love a horror comedy, but mm. they're hard to pull off if that's what you're yes. aiming to do. And when you do, it's perfect. But it's like he blends the humor and the sinister and the joy and the bizarre all in this just so yeah. well. I, I also like that scene. I like those old timey. It's even got the like, the like, almost like extra, extra Batman yeah. <laughs> music sting to it. Like, yeah, um, there's a lot of good music. Even the score in this is really good. He's got music stings. Mm-hmm. The only other thing I think we need to mention that's mm-hmm. like hurting this movie that people mention all the time is the fact that like the version that we've all seen is not the actual official version of the movie, but they got sued. by led zeppelin because they had the record label in this movie is death records but it was originally swan song records which makes Mm -hmm. more sense because swan and led zeppelin had that title and the movie was not allowed to be released with any of that in it so they use in some scenes it's very noticeable and (laughs) awkward so when he's giving his little press conference outside the plane you have the logo yeah of the the dead bird (laughs) superimposed and it's kind of like like hovering yeah. a little bit and it's and it seems like such an awkward bizarre choice but it's because they couldn't get it out of there and they didn't want they didn't reshoot anything so nothing was uh-huh. reshot and so there's a few tracking shots that are actually interrupted in the movie because they had to cut away so when he goes into swan's offices through those big glass doors before he gets ejected from the building when he's running down the hallway both times it cuts to like the woman behind the desk and it does that because it says like swan song industries and outside the building same thing you don't see those so they have to like cut away but then there's a few scenes where it's there but there's so much going on that yeah, they got away with leaving it in and so because the whole auditorium there's like banners everywhere that have the logo of the two swans the heart and it's like they're like almost kissing and it's there so those banners are there but it's not like the focus and so that's all edited out of this movie and so somebody has um i believe it's the swan archives okay they have the full cut of it um so they have all the cut scenes and they've they don't put them back in the movie but they show it separate okay and they tend to do talks with it and so that's how i got to see it is they've oh amazing they i think it's on special features on one of the discs i i will put that in the show notes for people 
to look at because I'm glad you mentioned that. That was one of the points I forgot to bring up, but it is funny to see the superimposed scene. And because the film is chaotic enough, you're kind of like, it still kind of takes you out of the scene where you're like, what's going on there? But you kind of just accept it. It's unfortunate that they can, but I also kind of like death records. I think that's a oh, cool. I, I love death records. It's just like, it's, it's such a like out of, um, it doesn't like fit in terms of like the way he yeah. likes to reference things. And so Swan being this textbook narcissist who's obsessed with himself and he's he's the famous one it's never his artist mm-hmm. people aren't obsessed with the juicy fruits they have that at the beginning mm-hmm. where they do their song and no one cheers until you see his gloved <laughs> hands come out and clap and then everybody's rock is cheering like everyone is beholden to swan and what he loves so for the record company to not be named after him so it's it was one of those things i was like what an interesting choice and then i looked looked mm-hmm. out of it but there is yeah there is a restoration copy that you can get that they've like re-edited the whole movie actually so it's okay. swan archives their salvage footage so i will i'll make sure to get you the copy the link to their footage because they have it on their site and then also you know i'm not part of the swan archives but they anything you could possibly want to know about like mm-hmm. deep dive bizarre like to the letter facts about this movie they have all of it they've dedicated yeah. like scene by scene things about all of it i was reading some of their production notes and because i didn't even know this set existed prior to you know wanting to do an episode on this and i was like oh my god they have a lot like i need to actually sit down and go through all of it after this it's it's great though yeah the, every time i look i find they update a lot like new information mm-hmm. but they're yeah they restored everything from the work print so it's amazing it wasn't even De Palma who distorted it. like they somehow got access to these archives and were the That's ones cool. that like yeah use that work print footage and i love a controversy in a movie where it's like (laughs) oh this was removed for legal reasons it makes you want to see it even more oh yeah well i mean i think that phantom of the paradise it's just a fun movie i mean i know we've been saying that but it's a great movie but i want to shift to just the last portion of the show and bring it back to De palma and the themes of this film so The first question I ask for the last portion of the show is if someone comes up to you and is like, I haven't seen a De Palma film before, where should I start? Are you going to recommend this film uh, as a starter film? If so, why? And if you're not, which one of his films would you recommend they start with? I mean, even the fact that it's my favorite movie, like aside from that, I would say this Mm -hmm. unless I know someone isn't going to bite on it being because it's not a again capital M musical but having like yeah. a musical element to it this really is the one that I think you get a taste of everything he does and it's you know not as you know contentious as a movie like Dress to Kill um, yeah. where you know you're gonna he's gonna make a choice that's gonna alienate a lot of the audience and it's I feel a lot of people their first movie of his is like something like Scarface and I think that this is a mm-hmm. better a better entry point to like the nuance of his filmmaking. Then when you watch all of his other stuff, you can like see bits and pieces and see again, do you want to lead to his mobster and war movies? Or do you want to lead to his like mess with your head? Yeah. (laughs) Goofy or not like that kind of more surreal movies. And this, you get a little bit of all of it. Oh yeah. That's like the definition of like starter film where you're like, okay, what can I show a person that, 
perfectly encompasses what the director has to offer and then they can decide which route they want to go in or they can watch all of it but i think this one is a great one to start off with because it gives off that vibe carrie would also be a good one to start off with if you want like a softer version it's still out there but it's like it's even more narratively like what people are expecting in a film or it is a little bit more to the point um Mm -hmm. and carrie is also again one of my all-time favorites and is like a good in because like his three i think that really show what he does before you know branching into whether or not you may not like them are fan of the paradise carrie and blowout Mm -hmm. yeah where they're all kind of like the different vibes and then you can pick from there and everyone's gonna be mad I didn't say Scarface, but like too bad. I I mean I do like Scarface. But I love I don't it. Think, I don't think that I would recommend that film for someone who's trying to get into Brian De Palma. I also am never going to recommend an almost three hour movie as an entry movie into yeah. anyone's no, no. filmography. No, I'd be like if you get around to it, fine. But yeah, like the two movies that are under a hundred minutes, and I've yeah. picked a ninety two <laughs> minute movie. You know, it's not too much of a commitment, and then you're going to be obsessed with it for the rest yeah. of your life. Exactly. I mean, I being the person I am would be like, I would want to say you got to watch Body Double right off the bat because that movie means the entire world to me. But I also don't. I also have to take into account that some people might not be ready to embrace their inner freak (laughs) i hope everybody who's listening to your body double episode when you get to it came to the screening of it body double is a movie i would recommend if somebody i know who likes erotic thrillers is like i've never seen a brian de palma movie i'd be like well have i got the movie for you (laughs) or people who like movies where there's a lot of twists where it's like a cat and mouse game but Mm -hmm. Again, that's one of those, like, as you go through his filmography, you get to find yeah. all these beautiful movies where to start off. Start with his greatest movie, which is the greatest movie ever made, Phantom of the Paradise. There you go. You heard it here. But if you were going to create uh, a double bill for this film, either for yourself or for people uh, noting that, you know, there's different vibes you might be going for. So you might want to bring up more than one movie. You can only bring up one. You can bring up multiple if you want. Uh, What film are you pairing this with and what would be the order that you would put them in? The order. Ooh, I didn't even think you're going to ask that, which is very important (laughs) for a double bill. So like as a programmer, Mm -hmm. I have programmed this movie many times. I have done it as double bills before and there's like a few routes you can go with this so there i feel like the obvious one that most people are going to say is to pair this with rocky horror picture show because a lot of people think that this is ripping off rocky horror picture show this movie came out first but it's got that kind of goofy one some near identical scenes throughout the movie so if you want to watch something and like almost watch them to compare them mm-hmm. or because you want to go you know way further into that realm of like a rock opera horror musical and the way that i normally pair my double bills is i play the movie that people have seen before and know they're gonna watch second because it's like you've got to sit through the movie that you're not you weren't you wouldn't give a chance otherwise first and so because everyone's seen rocky horror as much as that's going from a high to a low, and I say this loving Rocky Horror, I would start with Fan of the Paradise. So you can almost see where like they correlate after. And again, people are going to be more rowdy during a Rocky Horror screening. So yeah. it's like, you could maybe want to get them to get it out of their system first, but they won't. They'll be too hyped up. So it's like you get them hyped up by a good movie and then they can expel their energy by like dancing in the aisles for the second yes. one. 
what I've double billed it with before in the past is Voyage of the Rock Aliens, which has nothing in mm. common with this movie other than the fact that it's a nonsense musical. Okay. That so it's like you get another nonsense musical exactly a decade later that okay. is like bananas sets it's got pia zadora it's just like over the top and extremely camp and then a more interesting one is there's this movie called stage fright uh the italian Mm. name is deliria it's also known as aquarius by michelle suavi it's from 1987 and it takes place in a it's during a play and people are trapped in a theater but they realize that they're trapped in a theater with a masked killer and the killer is wearing this owl mask and it it aesthetically is extremely similar to phantom of the paradise the same thing it's all you know in a theater it is a really similar movie it's a gorgeous italian horror movie a lot of it feels inspired by fan of the paradise almost directly i couldn't help but think of phantom of the paradise like the whole movie mm-hmm. and not in a bad way just like oh whoa this creepy bird like mask yeah yeah um which is like the iconic imagery of that and that one i would pair it i would reverse it you would play the last two i mentioned you would play phantom of the paradise second and then just on a thematic sell your soul to the devil if you want to really go into sell your soul to the devil horror realm is alucarda the juan lopez moctezuma lesbian vampire daughter of dracula movie demonic possession very very elaborate sets and kind of you know that very paint adjacent blood that you would get in 70s films and you know movies where people sell their souls to the devil i would chomp at the bit to be able to program those together and it's not and not a very recently got a resurgence but it was a movie for the longest time that was extremely difficult to find because it's uh came out it's like an independent film from mexico in this okay it is out now in it screened in the city recently and you know the the tagline for fan of the paradise is you know he sold his soul for rock and roll and (laughs) alucard is as they gave their souls to hell but the devil wanted more like it's oh. got that kind of kind of surreal Twilight Zone but sinister nature to it. Okay, I'm gonna I'm looking that one up so I can add it to my uh, your watch list. My watch list. We do love we do love Letterbox and their their yeah. watch list feature. Yeah, Alucarda. Yes. It's you know in a similar vein to blood the blood on Satan's claw, but. Uh-huh. much bizarre more bizarre and comes in at a cool 78 minutes so well those are all really great recommendations like i hadn't seen most of them but they sound like they would be great as double bills maybe we are getting into the spooky it getting the spooky season um yeah. i'm assuming the one you've seen is the rocky horror picture show yes yes yeah uh, yeah and then so the other the other ones you know they've either played in the city recently or they mm-hmm. will play soon and that's what i do so if anybody's interested like I, I, I in addition to programming i'm like a trove of here's the weird movie that you've maybe never heard of <laughs> that's like kind of kooky mm-hmm. i uh you can tell at the video store whenever i'm there um in someone's returning movies <laughs> whether <Yeah. laughs> or not they're a stack of movies that i recommended that's good i mean also you also have your own Patreon. I do have my own Patreon, which is a. Uh, you could get more recommendations from you on there if you sign up. Yeah, it's um. You can find it through my website or directly on Patreon. They're both under Drag Me to the Movies. Mm-hmm. Drag Me to the Movies TV. Watch with Weird TV. I'm kind of everywhere doing the late night cable access. 
Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always on the hunt for a movie <laughs> that you think that you may have watched when you mm-hmm. were like 13 and you were up too late. And you're like, is yeah. this movie real? <laughs> Did I have a fever dream about this movie? And when you rediscover them, they're, yes. even if they're not as good as like your child brain remembered, they're like, it's so satisfying. Oh, yeah. I love that. I mean, we had a lot of that. I think I mentioned once to you, actually, because when we go to my dad's house, he had the Scream channel and they would play a lot of Canadian horror films because, you know, CanCon laws and watching The Paperboy, which is not the Lee Daniels movie, that's the Canadian the Paperboy other one. film. <laughs> and like my family, we always talk about that movie. We watched it every time it would, they play it. And it's not even a good movie, really. It, but it, it's so silly, but we were obsessed with it. And my dad brought it up to me like a couple of weeks ago. He's like, remember the paper boy? I was like, absolutely. <laughs> it's the one where like the kid is obsessed with the family next door. Yes. <laughs> and he's like trying to like make his perfect family be a thing. It's like schlocky 90s yeah. Canadian thriller. Man, oh, you've great. just unearthed. It's like single white female, but with a kid. It very much exactly that. It's exactly. Oh that. man, I that's there we go unearthing those late night. Mm-hmm. You've got one up on me. You've beat me in my own game, which is. Uh, <laughs> oh, I'm excited to revisit that. I definitely forgot about that movie. So oh yeah, everybody gets a nice little bonus. Exactly, exactly that. Well, thank you so much for talking Phantom of the Paradise with me. It was such a delight, and you brought so many great facts that I would have never been able to find on my own. So I really appreciate that and your enthusiasm for the film and just your the work that you do in the city. I We get a lot of Toronto listeners, obviously, because I'm Toronto-based. Most of the people I know are Toronto. But for the people who are the, on the outside, uh, I'm in a couple of film clubs and I often mention your programming. Because I'll be like, oh, I'm going to so-and-so. Even when I was going to Rope, I was like, I'm going to go see Rope on <laughs> cinema. And I was so excited. So thank you so much for your work and coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. Seeing Faces in Movies is an official podcast of the Royal Film Club. It's hosted and edited by Felicia Maroney. Intro music by Lamar Walker. And if you like what you heard, let us know at seeingfacesinmovies.com or send us an email at seeingfacesinmovies at gmail.com. And while you're at it, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to your podcast. And thank you so much for joining us for Brian De Palma Month.